You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking About the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxon. The world of theatrical, theatre, life always gets a big share of the Speaking of the Arts showtime, mainly because we have such an incredibly active community with a plethora of shows on nearly all the time. And this week is no exception. On today's show, we're going to take a trip to the almost existing town of Almost Maine with director. Chris Petty and actor Terry Yates from Columbia Entertainment Company. But before we head to the far northeast, we stay firmly in the middle of the country to talk about strange new worlds with Meg Phillips Crespi, Robert Anderson, and Roshara Knight. The omnipresent Audra Circle was going to be here, but her yeah. omnipresence could not overcome a travel schedule thwarted by an impending storm. So we can just imagine that she's here, but we do have. We have her laugh here, so we can hear. We can, we can hear her laugh. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, yeah. oh. We have a <laughs> we have order on a loop, oh. <laughs> so we can just have order laugh or whatever you say. Oh. So, hello, Meg and Robin Good and Rosara. Good morning. <laughs> I was trying to think what a collective noun I might use for you all. A bevy of performers. A bevy. I like yeah, that. I like a, bevy. a cabaret of wonders. A smorgasbord. Ooh. A smorgasbord. <laughs> An embarrassment of talent. Yeah, embarrassment. <laughs> yes. Yes. A charm of lovies. <laughs> Oh, as we say in England. Um, or maybe an exaltation of larks. Ooh, exaltation. Yeah, there are some great collective nouns out there. Yes. So an exaltation of larks, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Maybe you. she's got a girl group just called an exaltation <laughs> of larks. Started, started up. So strange new worlds. I'm guessing you're not talking about the recently discovered moon of Pluto. Tell us what strange new worlds is. Oh, we are talking about Pluto. We are. No, okay. no, we're not. We named that five years ago. I don't remember how we came up with the name. I think that. we were just throwing out things like, you know, girl group names. Exaltation. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess the collective um, five years ago when it began, we all wanted kind of a platform and a deadline that was important um, to put up our new works that was very much kind of in the style of a listening room. And um, because songwriters and and composers especially when they have something new they try it out you know they'll bring it to an open mic or they'll book a gig and try it out for a new audience and they may or may not be listening (laughs) and so we really wanted not just the listeners but kind of a sounding board of other collaborators and creatives to help each other out with that process because it is terrifying (laughs) you know to see your baby come to life you're a creative baby so to speak and that's how it began and I don't know who who kind of term or who came I up with that I, term. I think as a nerd throughout Strange New Worlds, but that's the one that stuck. Yes. So. And it is strange. Yeah. How, how is it strange? Mm-hmm. 
Um, <laughs> she just gave me a great look. Just, my adjective that was running through my head was useful, really helpful, rather than strange. Just because um, I've used this analogy before, but it's like when you are wanting to paint a room and you can put the swatches on the wall all you want, but it's not until you've got all the walls covered and you're surrounded by it that you know if it works. Right. And it's the same way with, with new works. You can think that this hey, this play is probably where it needs to be, or the song, I think I've got it right, but it's not until you get in front of an audience that you are able to tell. And so your initial audience is the three of, there are three others in the group. There are four of you, is that right? It was myself and Meg and Audra and, and then Tony. Anthony Hernandez, who sadly is, has moved to Los Angeles. Sad to, for us. Yeah, Happy sad for us. He's doing great, but mm-hmm. um, he's a composer and a pianist okay. and, and writer as well. And um, so that was the original collective. And then Elle joined us, and she's a visual artist, and, or they're a visual artist. And that became, we added that element, you know, the last couple years to have kind of an art show, which was really neat. So so you say, I, I like the comparison of paint swatches. So, you know, you are all, you've painted the whole room, all four of you there are listening, but then you put the furniture and the drapes in the room, which is kind of like the wider audience. Yeah. And then things can change again, yes. I guess. Well, and actually, um, a, a lot of times it'll, and it's the case this year too, we haven't heard each other's stuff. And so we and are in with the audience hearing each other's stuff for the first time, just because schedules get prohibitive. Yes. <laughs> I think in the first year we had kind of a, a, it was a dress rehearsal, so to speak, but it was a time when we could come in and, and say, hey, you should try this. But really there wasn't enough time to, you know, because we would go up the, the next, next night, night yeah, you know, right. there wasn't enough time to make significant changes. But it is, yeah, it's strange for us as well uh, yes. we become listener and performer and do you obviously you give each other feedback do you ask for feedback from the audience we in fact have a talk back on friday night this year um, we did that last year as well uh, it's moderated by my hubby david crespi who does who moderates talkbacks all the time for mizzou um, and so that's a chance for the audience in a more formal way to ask us questions have us respond and then on saturday night you know, we'll just be taught. We'll be available and Saturday night. You can just take it. Just, <laughs> you can take it. That's right. So then, there may be changes between Friday and Saturday. If someone says this is really not working, or this is amazing, make it longer. <laughs> yeah. Well, like one of the um, greatest pieces of feedback that I got last year was from a, a local, a very talented local uh, musician, and she's like, "I would love to hear you play while you're." You know, we kind of. I did at least provided these like narrations in between songs to talk about where it came from and and give the audience a little bit of background. And she's like, I would love to just hear you play, you know, while you do that. And it significantly like helped the the you know the process of performing and you know made it more seamless. And of course, of course, that makes sense. But in the moment, there's so much to think about. You know, there's am I plugged in? Is the background singer are the background singers ready? Um, you know, am I going to remember my lyrics and et cetera, et cetera. So it's nice to have that that feedback. And Rashara, you're not one of the creators, but you're one of the performers I am. of the show. So, I mean, how much practice do you get when all this work is brand new? I mean, how many dress rehearsals are there for the performers? <laughs> Depends on schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you tell me that. <laughs> we've met once. <laughs> yeah, we, we've, met, we've met once. Do you have the music yet? Yes, we, we yeah. do have yes. the music. Robin is really good with putting that together. Like she, she uh, obviously, this is her work, so she knows what she wants. She knows what she wants it to sound like, and so 
me and Laura Rowe, we are doing some background vocals on some of her songs. And, you know, it was just because of how Robin works, we were able to get in there and, and figure out what she wants pretty quickly. So even though we've only had one rehearsal, I feel like we're pretty solid. Yeah. We'll meet again a couple and of times And we do have another week. one, yes. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. you've got another week to go before the yeah. event happens, but you, you are a pro. That would, seems like one or two dress rehearsals sounds pretty scary to somebody who isn't in the business. <laughs> I will say as a, as a creator, it's scary because you put this trust into, like, I think about people in the community, and I specifically chose Shara and Laura, who's not here today, not to be confused with Elle, <laughs> Laura Rowe, because they've sung together, and I've seen them sing together, and I'm like, they'll jam together, it'll be great, they'll walk in, and I trust them. And so there's this, um, yeah, there's just that trust that we just have to hand it to them and say, here's what you have to learn, learn it. <laughs> Now, although there are are four of you that have created this show, they're all individual works that you're working on separately. So this combination, it's not like you've written this show specifically. These are all four different parts of your each of your lives that have come together for this two-night-only show. That's so it right. doesn't get repeated after next weekend. Right. Just the two nights. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay, so Meg, your part of the show is called Full Circle. Yes. Tell us about your opus. Well, I called it Full Circle because I am I am doing works that have not debuted before, but I'm kind of returning to some of my, my younger days. Part of it is I did a lot of songwriting when I was really young, and I've kind of returned to that. Last year I did Lady Parts, and I actually arranged for, t- for next week, I arranged one of the songs, Aria Invisibile, for Barbershop. So I'm going to be doing that. And then in addition to some songwriting, I'm returning to the very first thing that I dared to write, which I don't know why I thought this was a good idea, was a novel. So it's been in a drawer for 15 years, proverbially, on my computer. And uh, so I've dusted it off and I'm going to read the first chapter. So this this is your great American novel. My great American quote, <laughs> as, great American as novel. Order. Make sure you get those quotes in. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the press release. So no one else has heard this before. This is no. the first time it's had a public outing. And you're going to read a chapter. Yes, yes, the very first chapter. And, and uh, <laughs> I'm making it right, right, right now. <laughs> what is the? Give us kind of a, the arc of the story of the of the of the great American novel. Of well, Full Circle. Um, so it actually started out when I heard the musical Assassins by Stephen Sondheim, and I heard the the number that's about John Wilkes Booth. And um, a lot of people, everybody knows, of course, he shot Abraham Lincoln. But a lot of people don't know he was one of the most popular actors of the day. It would be like if, I don't know, Chris Helmsworth shot the president. So that's what it was like. So that was really fascinating to me. So then I started researching about him, and I thought, well, I need to have a story, kind of a love story, but not really a love story. And so I found this heroine for him, and I started writing that, and then I discovered that I had to keep going back in time to, to get more of her life. And so the chapter that we're going to read is actually when she's six, when she's in Ireland um, during the potato famine. So you've reinvented John Wilkes Booth's life a little bit for him, a backstory for a love affair. Well, that's how it started, but now he's, like, there's five parts of the book, and he's in part five, so I don't really know what to do with it. But I really like my heroine. (laughs) And so she is, this is chapter one you're going to read. Chapter one I'm going to read, so no John Wilkes Booth. But if we like... If we like chapter one, it might be a while before we can buy the book. It, it 
might be. I mean, it's all written, but uh, I keep coming back to it now and again to try to revise it and make it the best. It is it all be. written. I mean, it is all written. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's well, just get on that, Meg. Like, just well, put part, it out there. I just gotta get part five right, man. Mister <laughs> <laughs> Strange New Worlds, the sixth the year. Sixth you'll be right. right. <laughs> so I was going to say, like, you know, like Audrey, you have a lot of projects ongoing all the time. You have five adaptations that you're working on right now for Girl Rilla Project. You have the Lady Parts production, which I'm sure you're endlessly working on and tweaking. How do you find time to sit down and write? And when you do have time, how do you decide which of your many projects you're going to work on? <laughs> That's a great question. I actually, I'm trying to work on um, Taming of the Shrew right now for Girl Rilla Theatre. And that's actually what I'm going to do over my lunch hour is... That's coming up pretty soon. It is coming up pretty soon. So I'm through Act 3. There's five acts of that. I'm through Act 3 and I'm uh, working on Act 4 at lunchtime. Um, So I don't know. As as, uh, Robin was mentioning earlier, deadlines are so, so helpful. Mm -hmm. So really that's a lot of what dictates it. Sometimes it's, oh, the muse is here and I want to work on X, Y, or Z. But a lot of times it's, oh, that's coming up better get cracking right do you have a, a disciplined uh, approach to writing when you get up at 5 a.m. and you're going to write from 5 30 to 6 30 um, I know a lot of writers do and that has just never worked for me I as soon as I tell myself I must do something or I can't do something then I'm like uh-uh nobody tells me what to know you know yourself so well <laughs> yes Robin, your contribution to the performance is a collection of songs examining mundane moments in time and their lasting impact on the psyche. She yes, read those the press release. <laughs> <laughs> Will we laugh or cry at if we're being honest? Oh, yes. <laughs> you will do both. You know, I think as I've developed kind of my voice, you know, the voice, over the years I'm I'm settling into this style that kind of pairs the existential with the impassably perky <laughs> and so um you know yeah that's great that's thank a you great yeah. quote yeah that's the pull quote for today's show <laughs> great yes um and you can hear it in a lot of my songs that they they sound kind of peppy and perky but really they're not <laughs> like if you listen to the to the words um they are kind of down and so these songs are probably the most, when I say they're the most honest songs that I've written, I mean that they're really reflecting what what the words are about. And so um, I became a mother last year and went through a pretty serious bout of postpartum depression. And, you know, when you're down in it, I'm trying to kind of revisit that time and and process it because it's all about processing. And so the... The songs are are pretty down, and so we had to. We were discussing even now, writing the programs and and what order we're going to go in. And I said, "Well, please don't put mine first or last because <laughs> the audience will not. They're either going to leave crying, and we don't want them to leave crying. Um, you know, unless they're so moved that that happens. But that's that's the basis. Those those are my songs. So. And so, in terms of the how the how the evening rolls out, you each do your section, or they're interwoven with each other through the evening. We've done different orders in the past. Sometimes we've um, gone all in one chunk, and then others. Other times we've divided up songs based on kind of an, an arc and a journey that we want the listener and the audience to go on, which is up, down, up, down, but to ultimately leave up, right? Correct. And correct. so, yeah, I, I think we landed this year. We're going all in chunks. Um, and I will tell you that the last song, I'm going last, and my last song will be a comic number, so Great. sung by the, the lovely Christine Bay. 
That's okay. called Dear Director, an inappropriate audition song. So perfect. <laughs> going to be leaving on a funny note. How much are you in the evening, Rashara? How many songs are you singing? Uh, I'm in Robin's set, so. Okay. Yep. So, so you're in all two, of the set, all the way through? Uh, just, just two songs. Just two. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, two out of five. So I'll, I'll get to actually sit and enjoy most of the event with everyone else. And as a supporter... Talking Horse, yes. uh, Talking Horse Theater. Maybe you can, yeah. Yes, yes. yes it is being held at Talking Horse Theater. <laughs> Have all five years. This is the fifth year, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And they've all been at Talking Horse. No. No. It started off at Columbia College because at the time I was teaching voice lessons there, and um, we had use of the space and um, some support in that regard. And then did we? It's really just been at Columbia College and Talking Horse. Yes, that's correct. That's the only. Yes. And so we, I don't know what prompted the move to Talking Horse, probably the audience number, because the size at, at Practice Hall um, became, we, we eventually needed more. And so we moved to Talking Horse, and it's a great, it's a nonprofit that I think we all have strong connections to and ties to the people that that survive that. And so we are... It's, can I can I just like be transparent and just say that they're supporting us and that we are we don't have to reserve or, or rent the space right so mm-hmm. we're doing okay. yeah negotiated or we negotiated the space it's so. a great space and you're between shows I guess because white people will have ended by next weekend and then you right. won't have started the next one so it's it's great that you are able to do that and let other people borrow the talking horse space it's a great black box theater you can change it around absolutely it's it, great sound it is I mean it's it's kind of the perfect space for events like Strange New Worlds. It's very mm-hmm. uh, intimate. I like the intimacy and the idea of breaking down the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really my my favorite part of Talking Horse specifically, because so people can really feel like they're involved and connected with whatever is happening right. there. So. And in terms of production, this is all self-produced, and so it's nice to walk into a space that has lights, that has sound, you know, that has um, built-in box office and drinks next door. That always helps. So. That does help. <laughs> yeah. It gets too sad. <laughs> 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 Cry into our glass of whiskey. <laughs> that was a little order laugh. Did you add that? <laughs> So, um, Robin, describe your creative process a little bit when you're building something like this collection. What is the starting point and how does it build? Does it start with a thought and and, and lyrics? Does it start with a feeling well, of music? I think about this particular set of songs and, you know, I describe them as kind of inspired by mundane moments in life and maybe one of my more... I guess down songs is, is a song called Mama Lay Down and um, it came to me when I was washing dishes at like 3.30 in the morning <laughs> in my in the first three months of my child's life and I was so exhausted and all I wanted to do was lay down and so six months later when I was of sound mind I did write that song and so I think it comes to me in moments and one of the things that I've learned from working with Audra is over the over the months of working with her she would say oh there's a song there or, you know, we'd be in this, find ourselves in this crazy moment, and she'd say, there's definitely a song here somewhere. And so I started paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. And for me, it usually begins with lyrics, and sometimes a melody will pop into my head, and there's always that kind of never-ending list of voice memos stuck on my phone that kind of end up in this 
purgatory. <laughs> but and sometimes they they lace together and form a song, and other times I really have to work on it. But that's how it begins for me. Now there are two other creators as part of the evening, but they're not with us today. Earl Lou Davis, as you mentioned earlier, is a visual artist, and their work is called Sanctuary. And I'm guessing that'll be in the lobby to Talking Horse Theatre, will it? Uh, no, it'll, it'll be around actually the stage. be it'll actually be around the stage. It's the, a part of the show. It's part of the show. Okay. Okay. Nice mm-hmm. to see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about Elle's work. You know, it's again, it's the secret. <laughs> but I can say that Elle works very well under deadlines, like all of us. And we did have an update. You know, we have this Facebook planning group with constant threads, and they messaged and said, I'm not even close to done, but I will be for the show. And they did post a beautiful picture oh, of gorgeous. kind of like some abstract art. And we have always used Elle's work um, in our programs and in our like promotional materials leading up to each year, you know, whether it's art from years past that we're using in the current year, or hopefully, I'm hoping that we can draw from some of her current work to put in the programs and they place it and every year it's just this beautiful splash of color they use a lot of color color. Mm -hmm. and they have successfully sold work and so Mm -hmm. every year there's kind of this hole at the end that gets you know someone comes up and buys their work and so we have invested audience members who have purchased Elle's work in the past and they're coming back I think specifically for that. So fantastic, and I think I'm right in saying that L won an award at last year's Boone County Art Show. Yes, I seem to recall yes. that happening, and that which I think is very Facebook. inspiring. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, looking at the press release, it says that L will be showcasing paintings of places, objects, people, and experiences that have taken L into uh, L's holiest of places, sanctuaries, after a long year of introspection. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really deep emotional moments that are going yes. into this show. Certainly if you're looking back on a period of depression, that's very mm-hmm. dark and introspection can yes. also be very dark. Mm-hmm. So it's um, has it been has it been a cathartic process working through all of this? Do you think about the audience when you're when you're creating this work, are you creating it for you or are you creating it with an audience in mind? I think with any work, ultimately, for me anyway, it's, we, I do create for myself because I'm driven to create, but it's such a collaborative thing because once you've created, you need that audience, mm-hmm. you know, just to come full circle, as it were. Right. Title of the book. Okay. <laughs> so I cheated a little bit this year because my, I've learned that creativity is a muscle that you have to flex constantly and it took me I mean after I started having like not I've never actually had a panic attack but I started worrying after January 1st because I said what am I going to put up this year I have nothing and I returned to so one of the songs from the set is something that I did perform last fall at a rally for the chorus but it's new in that I've reworked it and, and created instrumentation and arranged backup vocals, et cetera, et cetera. So there's kind of another leg of that. And But when I performed that, you know, I had someone come up and say, I want a recording of that. Do you have that? Do you have that recorded yet? And I said, no. So there's that. Ultimately, I know I'm not the only mom who has been exhausted. <laughs> I know that. And so I write for that. But I also write because music is the... And art is the ultimate unifier, I think. And right. So, 
Yeah. I went I went to a really inspirational talk at Jesse Hall this week by the keynote speaker for the Mizzou Undergraduate Visual Arts and Design Showcase and he is an amazing artist called Brandon B. Mike Odoms and his work is really collaborative he works on abandoned housing stock in New Orleans and it really brought him national attention and he talked about the importance of collaboration as an opportunity to amplify voices how does that resonate with you? Well the fact that we got together in the first place I um I don't know whose brainchild it was, but I was just minding my own business, and I got this <laughs> message, hey, we're doing this thing, would you like to be involved? And I think what's great, when we come together as artists, then we can get a bigger audience and get the messages out that we're wanting to get out. And for a musician, I can say the it's different from just booking a gig um, and being a part of a lineup, because the there is that well, hey, the, like I trust Meg and Audra and Elle and Shara and all of my musicians so very much that there's, it's almost like being, creating music and being like lifted. It's like, you know, I think Audra in the first year described it as, you know, being in a, in a pool where you're weightless and you're, and all of the pressure is off, you know? And so there's, mm-hmm. there's this ultimate sense of comfort um, in putting this up. And but I have to say that the audiences too have been really, Um, generous and receptive and you know we go in saying this is you know the first time that these things have seen audience and uh please be gentle and they are Mm -hmm. so we appreciate that and i think in the process too every year having you know we talk about that lighting the fire under our, our proverbial butts but we when we have that underneath us we I remember in the first year thinking, man, if we do this for five years, we'll have a significant body of work. And we all do. <laughs> we do. <laughs> and Which has been really useful. And having the, not having to fill an hour or two hours worth of, sh- you know, having to fill that, that time, like timed set length has been right. a big pressure off of me. So, Rashara, give us performance dates and ticket information. Uh, performances will be on February 22nd and 23rd at Talking Horse Productions. Uh, you can find us either on Facebook or at www.talkinghorseproductions.org. Tickets are $15. And you can also give, um, you can call Absolutely. up the theater on 573-607-1740. Absolutely. I hadn't memorized it, I'd written it down. <laughs> she looked you in the eye Rashara when you did like, that. Really? I'm like, you, you know <laughs> my number? That yeah. Yes, it is. That is the number. <laughs> or go online to talkinghorseproductions.org and Talking Horse Theatre is at 210 St. James Street. Anything else you would like to add about the show that we haven't covered? I guess we should say the Audra um, section, her component is called Better Days, um, which is, um, let's see, it's about exploring a new musical multimedia uh, multimedia timbre pop folk songwriting approach heading away from jazz is a fresh start after a long season of change so again someone else has gone through change there's introspection there's a lot of internal gazing and hopefully catharsis for all who have been through either depression for whatever reason or change or loss Loss. um, or um, have a great American novel within them and just (laughs) need (laughs) encouragement (laughs) to get it out (laughs) that's right ladies thank you all so much I wish you all the best and i will be there next weekend i'm sure thank you you thank you thank you so much you have been listening to meg phillips crespi robin anderson and rashara knight you can see strange new worlds next weekend on friday the 22nd and saturday the 23rd of february at talking horse theater thank you all so much 
You are listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after the break, I'll be back with Chris Petty and Terry Yates from Columbia Entertainment Company to talk about their upcoming production of Almost Maine. Stay close to your wireless. And now we'll get back to Diana Moxon and Speaking of the Arts. Thank you, Mike. Welcome back. And to my next guest, director Chris Petty and actor Terry Yates, whose production of the romantic comedy Almost Maine opens at Columbia Entertainment Company next Thursday and runs for two weekends. Hello, Chris and Terry. Howdy. (laughs) So Almost Maine opened off-Broadway in 2006, and since then it has gone on to become the most frequently produced play in North America, knocking A Midsummer Night's Dream off the top spot, when it has over 4,000 productions by non-professional companies and over 90 professional theatre companies. It is the most frequently produced play in North American high schools um, and has been translated into 20 languages, and somehow I had never heard of it. The same. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So, Chris, set the scene for us. What is it all about? The best way to describe this show is it's basically eight short vignettes. I have seven actors portraying 19 different characters total. No two characters appear in the same scene other than maybe a name drop. But it just kind of runs the gamut from talking about different relationships. And you go from the beginnings of relationships to seeing them end to kind of everything in between. It's a really fun little show. I like it because I'm never bored. So, mm-hmm. I, it's. Uh, I think I'm going to read the back of the um, the play notes. It says, "One cold, clear winter night, as the northern lights hover in the star-filled sky above the residents of almost Maine, find themselves falling in and out of love in unexpected and hilarious ways. Knees are bruised, hearts are broken, but the bruises heal and the hearts mend. Almost in this delightful midwinter night's dream." <laughs> <laughs> And there's a story behind why it's called Almost Maine. Yes, yes. Terry, you want to explain that since it's your character that uh, explains that? In it's <laughs> not really a town technically. It's almost. It's like it's pretty much when you look at like there's a little map in the back of the script that shows like almost Maine's right near Canada. Like it's mm-hmm. so close, it's not even funny. So <laughs> and the fact that like it just kind of fits into like the through line of the entire show is like almost right. Everything is. It didn't almost. quite get organized. It didn't quite form a township. No, it's yeah. almost a town, but and not quite a town. And it makes sense when you meet all the characters. It's like, oh yeah, because everything's just, everything's just almost there, just just like so. You're like, okay, right. So the New York Times wrote, "Almost Maine is a series of <laughs> it says nine, it's eight or nine, nine amiably absurdist vignettes about love <laughs> with a touch of good natured magic realism, witty romantic, unsentimental, a beautifully structured play with nifty surprise endings, most but not all of them happy. So take us on a tour, Terry." Of some of oh. the vignettes and the people we meet along the way. Well, the the realism thing is it's, it makes sense because it's like it's it's also really difficult to play. Like at the same time, like it's done by high school productions, but it's all there's a lot of like like I said like almost there. So like all the vignettes are. I forgot the question. <laughs> uh, t- take us on a tour of the vignettes. Like, who do we uh, meet? Who are the people, uh, the characters uh, that we meet along the way? I have a couple of characters. I have East, which is a repairman, and uh, like he's just like your stoic repair dude. Uh, another one of my characters is uh, Lyndall, who's in a relationship, like a long-term relationship that's trying to come together. And then the last one's Dave. It's like, it's like a lovesick guy, which is you know pretty standard. So all the characters like you can resonate. All the different vignettes you can res- like resonate with because right. it's all something you've experienced if you've been in love or been in a relationship with anybody, not just a, a lover, but like a partner or a friend. Like it's all 
it's all captured there, which I think is neat. And some of them are at the beginning of their relationships. They're just meeting. Other ones are yeah, part Yeah, some are just through. like hot and fresh. Like one's a total stranger <laughs> and, and, and it, like East is a denizen of the town. And then like the, the woman he meets is a total stranger. There's some that have been together forever. There's some that have been friends for a long time. They're just discovering new relationships and the right. depths that it goes to. So that's neat. Tell us about uh, East and Glory who meet uh, in the first vignette. It's, I think the thing is like it's, it's criminally simple on how the character's like, he's a repairman. <laughs> Right. This is his land, and then Glory is a stranger that just shows up, and he's just like, "What's up?" In a tent in his back garden. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and he's like, "All right, how's it going?" And then like, kind of goes from there. That that is one of my favorite ones. So that, really, <laughs> yeah, I think it's very cute. The play okay. has several abrupt confessions of love, mm. most of which seem pretty unlikely to happen in real life. Yeah, which couple's story stays with you after the theater has emptied? Uh, the one that resonates me with the most is the story of hope just from like my personal experience of having a relationship like that like there's a line he says like like the hope gets killed in a slow painful way like just over time instead of quick and I, like, I've experienced that where it's like you want to like make it work but it's like slowly you're like ah oh, it, it just hurts so much mm. and you finally like move on but you know it's still there that that is a sad one hope uh, hope yeah. and daniel i think mm-hmm. hope has moved away from the town mm-hmm. and um has regretted uh, a decision or an, an indecision that she made many years before and she returns to the town to find daniel in the hope of changing a past a bad decision mm-hmm. from the past but unfortunately well we'll see when you come and see the play what happens to hope and daniel <laughs> 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 aside from a few references in the dialogue to characters so we have met in other scenes the stories really don't uh, intertwine so you have like you said 19 people uh, 19 characters and some directors I guess you can choose as few as four people or you can have every character represented and you went with I think you've got seven actors in the yeah, show yeah I've got seven what, where, what made you decide on seven I've seen the production done with four people and it works out well but the problem you get into is everything becomes a quick change backstage for actors and um my experience is on the tech side of things and backstage stuff, so I hate long scene changes. So I kind of just came to this conclusion that eight was going to be a good number, and then we ended up with seven. Just kind of there in between, you give everyone, try not to have people in back-to-back scenes. It makes it a little right. easier for technical purposes. And tell us about the seven actors that you have in the play. Well, uh, we've got everyone from veterans of the stage, people that have been on our stage several several times and then left and came back, some new folks to our particular stage at CEC, and then some new folks to theater entirely. I think there are only, or were only about two people in our entire cast that I hadn't worked with previously before on things. So it worked out really well. We've got, I like to get some new people in when we can. I like to get new right. people on our stage. So it really, it kind of worked out that the seven people we have kind of ran the gambit of what I like to look for. How did the actors decide which roles they were going to take? Did you kind of duke it out or did you say, no, we, I want to be We got commanded East. our roles. So, <laughs> okay. And I got, I had got cast for two different roles and then I got recast because someone stepped away. So Okay. So you have, so you have four characters you're playing. Three, three characters. Okay. Um, we'll find out. So who would you? <laughs> Oh, you tell us a little about the characters you play. Like, how do you get when you have to change characters? Mm-hmm. You have to kind of change your persona as an actor. Yeah. You really don't have a lot of time to do that. So, how how do you between scenes when you're suddenly a completely different character? How do you mentally prepare for that offstage? Well, I think rehearsal definitely plays into that. And along with the director and the assistant director, they really form that. So, by the time we're doing show, like it's all locked in. Like about now, which I'm still not quite settled on East because that's one of the more difficult scenes for me to play. But like Lindell. 
and Dave or something I can do in my sleep. So that wasn't very hard. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's mostly just like posture. Uh, I pitch my voice up and down depending, and it's just different mannerisms. The script definitely informs a lot of it as it should. So I just lean into that and it just takes care of the rest. Do you have a Northeastern accent? Do you do a Maine accent? No. no. Okay. The, the, the playwright, I mean, if, if you read the script, like right. he is super, super all notes. It's like, there's no accent. You want to hit the R's hard? Maybe, but that's it. But I think that's mostly for the high school kids. Right. Just to teach them how to human. But yeah, we just don't do any accents because I think it would... It would take away from it and just make it too cartoonish. Yeah. And it's the show's almost there anyway. So So what was it about this play that made you go and audition for um, it? <laughs> I was just uh, dusting off. I haven't done any stage work in over like almost two decades. So I was just trying to get back into it. Wow. And, and so like I auditioned for the show. I didn't think I was going to get in, but then I showed it to auditions like, oh, no, I'm going to get cast in this. <laughs> okay, well, here we go. So that's how it went. And Chris, what about as a director? Why did you opt for this play? Um, I like to tell people it, it, I don't really have any personal attachment to like the scenes itself as a show, but what draws me to it is when I moved to Columbia, um, it was basically the first show I had any help or any part in uh, when Talking Horse did it, and so it's just kind of nice for me to have come kind of full circle and and go from being the stage crew on the show a few years ago to actually leading the charge, so to speak. Now, there are a couple of choices that the playwright hands over to the director. You have an option on how to manage the intermission, and that leads into the big choice that the director gets to make at the beginning of Act 2, and you have two options. Tell us about the vignette called They Fell and the choice that you made. It's really funny, and I made a good choice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, This is the third revision of the script, and... I, I, I the best I can tell is that he got a lot of complaints from people at some point in time throughout everything and he kept changing things to suit other people. They fell is one of the scenes that he, they give you an option um you can you can run the cast with two male presenting characters or two female presenting characters. And it's I've I've seen it both ways and it's for me it's a way funnier with the two female presenting characters. Um so when it came down to auditions I saw, you know, we had a whole gambit of people there. And really what it came down to was who do I think is going, who can I pair together and make this funny? And the, the weird thing was that when I made the decision on how we were going to do it is that it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily what's the audience going to find funniest. It's what am I as the director who's going to sit through this constantly for several weeks? What am I going to find the most funny? So I, I went... I went with the, the you know version with two female presenting characters mostly because mostly because one of our a- the actresses I've always I, I don't know her real well but I've worked with her she always kind of struck me as a real proper person so I just kind of wanted to shove her into some place where she was a little less proper. <laughs> for for me that is one of the most touching <clears throat> vignettes. It seems in some ways the most real when I was reading through it I thought there were quite a few moments of truth in this it's a comedy it's Mm -hmm. a romantic comedy but every now and again people certain characters say things that just are moments of truth they hit home a little bit more and in the vignette called They Fell which is the beginning of Act 2 one of the girls says to the other there is one thing in this world that makes me feel real and it's you and it's and it's always been you and it's that moment of realization of I love you. Um, and it's just really beautifully delivered, I think, in the play. Mm. Do you ever thought about that? I just, like, in general, I think, especially with theater, I've always, like, this when I showed up to audition for this one, there was a lot of uh, lady actors. And I think this definitely plays into the fact that there's a lot of great actors right. out there that never get tapped because, I mean, for the most part, it's mostly, like, three dudes for every one 
girl role. So I think this is definitely plays into the fact that there's a lot of strong right. uh, women actors in Colombia, and that's a perfect choice. I thought it was great that he did that instead of just being like, "Oh, you're the dude, and you're the just, it has dudes go." Right. So I appreciated that. Yeah, it's it's a lovely it's a lovely scene. So the script for the play is prefaced by two quotes: one which states simply that almost <clears throat> Maine is for romantics, not sentimentalists, and then a quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel *This Side of Paradise*, where the character Amory says, "The sentimental person thinks things will last; the romantic person has a desperate confidence that they won't." And it seems to me that there's a lot of tenderness and sadness and nostalgia running through the play. So it kind of is a little sentimental. Mm-hmm. Where do you sit on the romantic? versus sentimental interpretation of the play i think it depends on the on the vignette so to speak yeah yeah it, it's kind of hard to narrow it down to one for the whole show i definitely think you get into scenes like story of hope that's definitely playing into sen- sentimentality mm-hmm. um whereas you go to the end uh, <laughs> yeah you go to the end and seeing the thing and i definitely <laughs> think that's that's a yeah, it doesn't really end sentimentally. Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> Ends lustfully. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and there are a lot of questions that can get answered that way for this show. It's like it, it just depends on which particular scene you're in, how, right. how it really boils down to it. And are they, are they are all about the same length, are they, when you play them? It's hard <clears throat> yeah. to tell when I'm reading the script. Like but six they... to ten minutes, I think we've okay. been hitting it with. So, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and that's kind of one of the little... The little tie-ins that kind of holds everything together is, in theory, all of these little scenes theoretically take place at the same time of day, like between 8.50 and 9 p.m. Okay, so they're all uh, uh, contemporaneous with each other. They're all kind of going on at the same time, the same night. Theoretically, yes. (laughs) I mean, there are are some little moments within the script that you know that that's kind of the premise, and then you get to reading into it, and like, wait, no. (laughs) But that's the idea. Why do you think high schools love this play so much? It's good scene work, I think. It's the duet scenes. I think it's really... And it helps, like, I think, when you're a young high school kid, I guess it's it's a good, like human tutorial just like this is how it goes because it's not too overblown that's the biggest part of like playing this like you don't want to play it too big because it takes away from the scene but it also plays it's just really good i think really good scene work for young actors to kind of get their feet wet and understand how to play a scene because like the last scene seeing the thing like i play it basically peaks and valleys and i think it's a perfect kind of to teach an actor how to like okay do it now now do a little bit it's kind of to keep the audience coming in right. by doing peaks and valleys with your performance it does sometimes seem like as, as someone wrote it's kind of an extended acting exercise yeah. they like yes you did no i didn't yes yeah. you did no. that's why i like that's why i like doing that's like after all these years of not doing stage work I was like this is the perfect way to kind of get back in and get my muscles back in shape and it was and like everybody all my scene partners are great so right a lot of it's just like kind of holding on and just getting your cues and you don't really, because the scenes are all so short and there are mm. multiple vignettes in the piece, I mean, you don't really go very deep with any of the characters. So you have to present um, a fully formed character in a very short yeah. period of time. Is that tricky as an actor to do that? Not really. I mean, just it, like I said, the script does it. And then like the other night we started doing costuming. And so like I made sure to find costumes that would instantly inform the audience. Like this is why, like for instance, uh, the Lyndall and Gale scene, why this guy has taken 11 years to kind of get it together and propose to her because he's slovenly he's like this works this is a good groove i'm in it 
And so you can look at him like, oh, yeah, he's got busted sweatpants. He's wearing an oversized <laughs> shirt. He's got the remote in his hand. He's watching the big game instead of like. Did you do uh, the costumes in? Are you in charge of all of the? No, no. I just brought my stuff in to kind of show. So like most of it's <clears throat> from the shop and someone's from my own house being like, this is your, these are old pajamas. I'll just bring them in because they seem to work for the character. Did you let the characters or the actors decide their own outfits for the show, Chris? <laughs> yeah, to an extent. More or less. Um, which I also, the costume for the show, is, I think, is one of the reasons it ties into high schools a lot. Because mm-hmm. you don't really necessarily have to have a costumer for this show. Everyone's just kind of in normal clothes, pull from your closet. We kind of had, uh, we kind of had an idea of what we wanted each character to be dressed in. But we weren't real particular about, you know, yeah, we want you in flannel. Oh, but not that flannel, you know. Right. You brought in a flannel shirt, we were happy. You brought in a t-shirt, <laughs> we were happy. So. Now, again, looking at how high school's played, I mean, with the, the vignettes, are, sometimes they're about young love, and you can see that, oh, this works for a, a younger mm-hmm. person. But then there's a couple, I think, Phil and Marcy, who are married. Yeah. And so there are, uh, if you were not playing it in a high school, you would have actors of multiple ages playing those roles. And I'm guessing you have done that. You've not gone with all, all young people. You have a multiple age range in your cast, do you? Just in case the cast is listening, I refuse to answer that question. We're all 24 and beautiful. <laughs> Except the two that aren't 24, but oh. they're still beautiful. Oh, man. Yeah, there's definitely some people that should be a little over 24, maybe 26. But the thing with the script is the script has a lot of uh, player. I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of playwright notes. So I think it, like, it'll inform the high school kid doing yeah. it. Like, this is how you can approach it. So, I mean, like for older adults and actors it kind of gets in the way when you're trying to memorize lines and get the character like get, get out of the way playwright but i think it works <laughs> Actually, the, the playwright john john cariani uh, who is also an actor Ooh. he said of his play if it's only funny it's terrible and if it's only cute it's terrible and if it's only sad and depressing it's terrible it's tough <clears> for me when people play it for broad comedy that's not what i want it to be how do you feel your production plays it uh, there's when we got to working in each scene, um, we kind of set out down with the actors and basically told them here, here's the thing. Um, yes, there are some scenes that have touching moments, but are just written to be played as broad comedy. Um, then you get into scenes like story of hope and where it went. And those are scenes that, that I, I, I told the actors in those that, you know what? This, you know, we're going to play this as real as we can because I promise you there is not a member in that audience any that has not dealt with this situation at some point in time. Right. And the more real you can make it, the more it hits. And, you know, I want, you know, that's one of those things that it's so real sometimes that it can be uncomfortable to watch. And mm-hmm. I was okay with that because that situation in real life is uncomfortable. So, um, yeah, we run the gambit. We don't, like I said, some scenes are just kind of written for broad comedy, some scenes are written just to be cute. Some mm-hmm. are written to be, I guess, scary isn't the word, but <laughs> but some have sadness yeah. within Depending. them, yeah. a loss, <clears throat> the idea of kind of loss. And, yeah. um, and I think the key with the show is, I think, you know, what he said is right. I, I don't necessarily think he meant that everything has to be all in one scene, but right. you can't play every scene as funny. You can't play every scene as a straight yeah. thing. So you just got to, you've got to read the script. You've got to have... And, and that's the great thing about the script, that depending on the interpretation, how the director sees it, certain scenes, like, you know, Story of Hope is always going to be a sad one. Mm. Um, where it went, that's always going to be kind of right there. But then you get some of the other scenes where you can play them comedy, you can pull it back, and you can play it straight and right. meaningful. 
I think I think one of those examples maybe is the Jimmy and Sandrine, which is uh, the mm. second um, the second story, the second vignette called um, Sad and Glad. Sad and Glad. <laughs> there we go. Which is the meeting up to ex boyfriend girlfriends, and they meet in a bar, and he's really excited to see his ex girlfriend, and she is there with her girlfriends, and she has to break some news to him about why she is there in the bar, and and so there's little bits of kind of funniness there and awkwardness, and um, but then there's kind of just this sadness. That's one of those kind of moments of truth uh, in the play that I kind of liked um, some of the dialogue in that. And when it, she said, oh, I know, I thought you would know. And he says, people don't tell you things that they know you don't want to hear. Mm. <laughs> so you feel you feel kind of sad for him at that point. And talk a little bit, Chris, about the set design, because I know that's part of your background. You have to cover <laughs> nine different scenes, some indoors, some outdoors. You've got to conjure up some Aurora Borealis, Northern Lights, and a little surrealism. So what were your design goals for the set? I went very minimal. Talking Horse did this show back, I don't remember the year, but at the Talking Horse is a black box theater. They have limitations. And when I came in to, to direct this show, um, some of the limitations we actually had going in were the fact that, you know, our season is really tight. So we've got, we had a, you know, we didn't actually get into the space until February 4th. So it became a situation of, well, I'm going to go with minimal sets so I could build it in the garage and haul it over. And that way the actors had set to work on as soon as we, as soon as we got the space. So, so it's a very minimal set, um, you know, suspension of disbelief, you know, you know, we're also pretending we're a black box now, so I can get behind (laughs) that. Um, because, and I, and I think he probably says it in the script somewhere, um, this is not a show where the set is all that important. You could do this show without a set entirely and right. and be okay because you don't, they're not looking at the set. They're looking at the actors. Or they're hearing, hearing the lines and stuff like that. So um, we went real minimal. I think total I have two four by eight wall sections on casters and a bench. Okay, <laughs> that's pretty minimal. With a, few, with a few furniture pieces here and there. Mm. Right. Um, as far as Northern Lights go, I have a plan. We'll see if it works. <laughs> have you tested it out yet? I, I've ha- I have a working model in progress, and it's not. I know how to refine it, so it'll be okay. Okay. Well, I mean, that's kind of lighting, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah, that's, that's playing around the lighting. Thing. Yeah. Although, if I can't get the lighting to work, I'm just going to have people in body suits and be ribbon dancers. You know, the Northern Lights ribbon dancers. So. Okay, they're ingenious. <laughs> And your background is set design. I think you designed the set of last year's Little Shop of Horrors. I designed and directed that show. So generally speaking, do you think that, because you are a set designer, so it's your baby, do you think that your set design is kind of one of the characters in the play, or do you like it to be more invisible? Do you think it should float behind the actors and not? You you shouldn't really notice it, because all your work has gone into it. (laughs) For this show, the set is not a character. It's there basically just to kind of set the stage a little bit but like i said if if i had just been feeling lazy and not wanted to build a set we'd have been all right um there is also a soundtrack that accompanies the script as a short <laughs> musical interludes between the scenes is that something that you have you you're using from the julian fleischer i think is the producer of that score uh no we're not using that soundtrack we okay. actually had an original soundtrack put oh. together by a local musician uh, caleb alexander his wife is our assistant director oh, and yeah. <laughs> and it worked out really well and I, I i don't know if i could tell the story because it, it's her dad but it's really funny is her dad they they're they're from the kansas area and he's actually doing this show they open this week 
you know. So we've got it kind of going back to back, and he had requested an original soundtrack from Caleb, and uh, then when we decided to do the show, he brought it to us too. So okay, so we we went that route. Great. So to each each the soundtrack between each vignette is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. It allows the audience to ponder the emotions that maybe have been raised during that vignette and let me tell you that's hard for me to do as a tech guy because that there's that odd moment where you're in between scenes where i really just want to be like all right go let's get this sucker going (laughs) and then so it's really hard to make that pause happen for me is there anything else that we should know about the play that we haven't covered any favorite lines or moments of truth or things that resonate with you more than more than others i'm good (laughs) okay So if people want tickets, they can go to cectheatre.org forward slash tickets, or they can call the theatre on 573-474-3699. Tickets cost $14 for adults, 12 for students and seniors, or if you go to opening night next Thursday or any Thursday evening performance, it's just $10. So that's a a good bargain. Even Mm -hmm. opening night is just $10. So next Thursday is opening night, the 24th. First mm-hmm. sure. yep. of uh, February, <laughs> and it runs twenty first, twenty second, twenty third at seven thirty, and then on the Sunday it's a two p.m. matinee. Correct, and then it continues the following weekend. So it's just a two weekend run this time. Yes, is that right. Yes, because often you guys do three weekends, don't you? Um, this is what CEC calls a stage two production. So it's kind of a it's kind of a smaller setup in general. So yeah, it'll be a two weekend engagement. Okay, and uh, after this, what's coming up next? Do you remember what's next on the schedule? Noise is off. Noises off, and you are auditioning for that. I think in the next couple of weeks, I do. Uh, I saw they audition on the twenty fourth and twenty fifth of February. Great. Well, if you fancy going down and, and, and <laughs> auditioning for that, then it's coming up, and you can check out also your Facebook page. There's a lot of information yeah. on it. Thank you so much, Chris Petty and Terry Yates. Mm, thank you. Uh, Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Almost Maine opens next Thursday, the 21st of February, and runs for two weekends with a final performance on Sunday, the 3rd of March, at 2 p.m. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts, and as usual, we will end the show with a whistle-stop rundown of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days. Gentlemen, you are free to stay and listen to everything that's coming up, or you are free to slide out of the studio Thank and you. carry on with your day. It looks like it's snowing pretty pretty well already, so yeah, probably should head out. Okay, this is the second and final weekend for Talking Horse Theatre's production of the J.T. Rogers play, White People. The play asks the question, what does it mean to be a white American? Tonight and tomorrow, the show starts at 7.30, plus there is a 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday, and each performance is accompanied by a talk talkback session to discuss the issues raised by the play. Tickets are $15. At the Stevens College Playhouse this weekend, you can see the Tennessee Williams classic play, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Tickets for that are $16. And at the Little Theatre in Jefferson City, there is a production of the ABBA musical Mama Mia on this weekend, and tickets for that are $20. Given how snowy it is, I guess I'm going to say you should check in with the theatres before you head out this evening to make sure that everything is still on. This weekend, the Odyssey Chamber Music has two concerts in their ongoing Baroque series. The first is tonight at 7pm at First Baptist Church in Columbia, and the second is tomorrow at the Central United Church of Christ in Jefferson City. At Cafe Berlin tonight, there is a true-false resident artist talk with Katie Jenkins talking about some of the Fest's transmedia lineup, along with avant-garde electronic musician Stephen Sengo, who's talking about the theory and science of sound. At the Blue Note, there is an anti-Valentine's Day dance party at 9pm, though other than being a 
day late. I'm not quite sure what makes it anti-Valentine's. <laughs> Couldn't quite work that out. But anyway, anti-Valentine's dance party. Saturday morning at the Boone History and Culture Centre is the next in their Meet the Author series when Jennifer Maritza talks about her debut collection of prose and poetry called Scar On, Scar Off, about a young woman's experience as an Afro-Latina in contemporary society. Jennifer's talk is free and open to all, and that starts at 10.30 a.m. The School of, Con- of Missouri Contemporary Ballet will have its youth ensemble choreographic installation on Saturday. That's on Saturday evening from 6 till 7. And there's a $10 suggested donation. Saturday evening, the Vagina Monologues will be performed at the Missouri Theatre, presented by the MU Women's Centre and the RSVP Centre. The show starts at 7 and tickets are $12 with all monies raised, going towards a programme that helps to fight gender-based violence in our community and around the world. On Sunday evening, the Blind Boone Piano Concert Series continues at the Boone History and Culture Center with pianist Brandon Boyd and the W. Crim Singers from Nashville, Tennessee, performing a concert entitled Coretta's Song, Sacred Music in the Civil Rights Movement. That show starts at 7 p.m. And that is a rescheduling of the concert from January, which was postponed due to weather. Hopefully it won't be postponed again. Tickets are $20.00. At Cafe Berlin on Sunday night, there is a listening party with local band Loose Loose, and that starts at 7pm, and they are awesome. Monday evening at Daniel Boone Regional Library, you can hear Ober William King, the poetic storyteller, at 2pm in the children's programme room. And on Monday evening, multi-award-winning storyteller Bobby Norfolk will be at Skylock Bookshop as part of the University of Missouri's Celebration of Black History Month. Next Wednesday is opening night for the University of Missouri Theatre Department's production of the Every 28 Hours Plays, a national performance project that takes its name from the shared and contested statistic that every 28 hours a black person is killed in the US by police or a vigilante. The performance starts at 7.30 at the Rheinsberger Theatre and there is a talkback session after each performance. Tickets for that are $16. At Skylark Bookshop next Wednesday, the Unbound Book Club will be discussing the George Sanders book, Lincoln in the Bardo. And George Sanders is the keynote speaker at this year's Unbound Festival in April. Next Thursday is open night for Columbia Entertainment Company's production of the romantic comedy Almost Maine. The performance starts at 7.30 and as always, tickets for the Thursday show are just $10. The show runs for two weekends. Starting next Thursday, the classic drama Machinal, inspired by the real-life case of convicted and executed murderer Ruth Snyder, is on at the Stevens College Warehouse Theatre. The show runs for just one weekend and tickets are $8. At William Woods University in Fulton, main stage theatre's production of Eurydice opens next Thursday for a one weekend only show. Tickets are $11 and at Jesse Hall next Thursday Ethel and Robert Mirabel will be in concert at uh, with their show entitled The River and that's going to be at Jesse Hall. Tickets start at $18. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me Diana Moxon and my good friend and sound engineer Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty Columbia. And you are listening to KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. A little bit of music here and then we'll get